Go ahead and turn your Bibles to three different passages of Scripture. I hope that doesn't stress you out too much. We're going to be, I'm going to try and harmonize some different things from three different chapters really quick. Uh, from Matthew chapter 10 is where we'll spend most of our time. Uh, but I also want to look at quickly as a kind of a way of introduction. I also want to look at First um, uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 and also you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Now, remarkably, uh, strangely, I think all of these uh, chapters in our Bibles have a, a, a way of connection, and I want to show you that uh, tonight. I hope to, at least. Um, now, I'm not a sailor. I, I have rarely been on boats or out in the ocean or anything, but I do know one thing is that mooring, M-O-O-R-I-N-G, mooring is sort of essential to sailing in any capacity. And mooring actually kind of refers to uh, the ropes or the rigging or perhaps even an anchor that uh, fixes a vessel to something that is permanent. It, it ties it to something that is secure. And that is crucial for the life of any seafaring vessel, whether it's a small craft or a large vessel, is the mooring of the vessel to keep it safe, especially when the waves can toss it to and fro. And I think a similar thing is done in all of these passages, but especially in Matthew 10, as we'll see, is the fact of the message that Jesus gives in that passage is what I would like to say moors us, it secures us, it fastens us to himself. And I, as you perhaps are familiar, the waves, perhaps of life, if you want to use that terminology, the stresses of life can uh, cause us to be tossed to and fro. And unless we are secured, unless we are moored and fastened to something that is secure and fixed and permanent, unless we are moored to the Messiah himself, we are going to be tossed, tossed about, and we are going to perhaps even be destroyed. And that's why I think all of these passages help us to focus and help us to get our lives fastened to Jesus. Such is the theme of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in fact, before I get to 1 Thessalonians, you have to go to Acts chapter 17, like I, I, I warned you. <laughs> because in Acts 17, we are introduced to the church of Thessalonica. Paul is with Silas and Timotheus, or we know him as Timothy, and you can read just at the beginning, uh, verse 1 of Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews, and we can read here there's a great revival in this city. Uh, a lot goes on, if you read in verse 2, And Paul, as was his manner, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So you see here, Paul is going into the church of Thessalonica. He's preaching, and he's establishing this church. And we see very quickly that this doesn't sit well with the Jews that were there in the church. Look at verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, 
took unto them lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So these Jews are stirred up. They don't like the message that Paul is preaching. They don't like the way the spirit is moving in this city. They don't like the fact that revival is happening because of the message of the gospel. And they stir up a mob, and they attack Jason's house. Now Jason was sort of like a deacon that was in this church. He was housing uh, Paul and his and his uh, crew here, and, and we see that this this uh, mob kind of forces Paul and his team to flee Thessalonica before he's ready. And it says, look at verse six. And when they found them not, so Paul and Silas and his crew have kind of uh, fled. They drew Jason out and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, "These listen to notice what they accuse them of. Notice what they accuse them of. These." that have turned the world upside down are hither also. They were afraid of their preaching because their preaching of Christ, the Christ who suffered, the Christ who they claimed had risen, it was turning the world upside down because that's what the message of the gospel does. It turns the world upside down. But we see that much tribulation happened, and you can jump down to verse 14. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So we have them fleeing. We have them fleeing the city of Thessalonica. And you can jump down to 1 Thessalonians 3. I want to draw something to your attention really quickly because Paul is concerned about this church. Obviously, he has just established it. He has just uh, sort of seen this great revival happen. And he's worried about these new believers. He's worried about their security, their spirituality. And so he's concerned for them because he knows that the affliction in this church persisted even after he was gone. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1, where it says, Paul writes, he says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. So he's writing to them, and he says, I sent Timothy back to you with this letter that you're reading. I sent him with this letter to encourage you. I had heard of the fact that you had been surprised, you had been shocked, and perhaps you had even been uh, discouraged by this affliction that had come upon you because of the message that we had preached. And so Timothy is relaying Paul's message, and he's concerned for them. But I, again, if you look at verse 3, I'm going to read down through verse 5. Look at the way that Paul chooses to encourage these new believers. Look at the way that he chooses to motivate them in their newfound faith. Look at what he says. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Uh-oh. My mic was not working, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Good job, Tommy. <clears throat> I'm going to work with two mics and see how this goes. <laughs> uh, where was I? Verse 5. And they t uh, tempted labor, and our labor be in vain. So uh, 
We see here, I love what he says there, though, in verse 3, where he says, For we know, for yourselves know, that we are appointed thereunto to suffer, is what he's saying. Basically, you could render that verse, we know that we are destined to suffer. So you shouldn't be surprised by it. You shouldn't be shocked by what's going on. Because we told you. We told you that this might happen. We told you that this was probably going to happen once you affirmed your faith in Jesus Christ, the the resurrected Messiah. We told you that you are destined to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a backwards way of motivating new people in the faith. (laughs) You're going to suffer. And guess what? You shouldn't be surprised by it. (laughs) And this is what's going to happen. But actually, Paul is what he's doing. And this is where we can jump back to Matthew 10. He's reiterating something that Jesus himself does in the Gospels. I love this passage in Matthew 10. Because uh, I think really what we have here in the, in the bulk of this chapter is I like to call it Jesus' pregame speech. I don't know about you. I love watching sports. I love watching pretty much all sports, but mainly basketball and football. But it might surprise you that one thing about me that you might not know is that I don't like sports movies. Um, I think they're kind of anticlimactic. You know, the underdog team uh, gets really down and then they have a stirring speech and they go out and they win the big game. That's like every sports movie ever. So we can know the ending of all the sports movies. (laughs) I don't find them very um, enthralling a lot of times, but that's okay. If you like them, you can enjoy them. Perhaps I watch too much Remember the Titans. I don't know. Anyways, I do love those speeches, right? The, the coach comes in and he's trying to rally his team to make a good second half effort or whatever. And he gives this just rousing speech that motivates them. They go out and they win the big game. Well, if you think about this scene in Matthew 10 kind of like that, this might be perhaps the worst pregame speech you could ever give to your team. Because look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 1. And I'm going to kind of jump around, but I'll kind of tell you where we are. Look at verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And then it lists their names and jump down to verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Now so far, it's pretty good. He's inciting them to go out and preach this amazing message of the imminent kingdom of God. And he's giving them power to do all kinds of miracles, to heal the, uh, the lame and to uh, cast out demons. But then look at verse 16. This is where it kind of gets backwards. Perhaps we might even say like in Acts 17, upside down. Look at what he says. Behold, I send you forth as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them against the Gentiles. Jump down to verse 21. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, And the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 
But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. <laughs> you, see what he's, you see how he's motivating them? Guys, go out and preach. You're going to be scourged. You're going to be hated. You're going to be beaten. You're probably going to be ran out by your brothers, by your friends. You're going to be betrayed by them. But go out and preach. Yeah. Does that make you motivated? <laughs> I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me very motivated. I would probably, uh, I always imagine this scene and just imagine the blank stares of the disciples when they're looking at Jesus give this speech to them. <laughs> really, Jesus, this is what you want us to do? And I think about it too, that what kind of message is this? That this is the message of not just Jesus, as we saw uh, later on, this is the message of Paul to the church of Thessalonica. What kind of motivation were Paul and Jesus after? Because it doesn't seem very motivating. Who would sign up for this Christianity thing if we know, as Paul says, that we are destined to suffer? Who would sign up for this? Well, I think our motivation comes in two quick things that I want to point out to you. Two quick promises that I think uh, more us, as we could use that picture, they secure us and they fasten us to the Messiah. Yes, even in the midst of all this sort of chaos that's moving on around us. So if you're in Matthew 10, look at verses 19 and 20. Because I think here we have the simple promise that Jesus says, I am yours. Look at what he says. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. You see that? They, couldn't, they, they didn't have to fear about what their message was going to be because it wasn't their message. They didn't have to be afraid of what they were speaking to the churches and to the lost flock of Israel as Jesus commands them. Because it wasn't their message, it was God's. And it was God's words in them and it was God's words flowing through them that was causing them to have this sort of confidence. Therefore, they could be bold. They could be bold in their stance. That's why he says, when you're thrown out of one city, go on to the next. Because it's not a matter of your success. It's the matter of my success, is what Jesus is saying. It's not up to you. It's up to me. It's my words. It's my spirit. You go out and you be faithful. They were just God's vessels. They were God's voices. And the message they were charged with spreading, yes, it, it, it could have been viewed as absurd, it could have been viewed as something that was foolish. As, as we saw in, in Acts 17, it was a message that was turning the world on its head. It was an upside-down message. This message that life comes through one who died on a cross, that doesn't make much sense. The message that salvation comes from one dying on the cross for our sins and taking our sins as his own. And then resurrecting on the third day. That's a message that turns the world upside down. And it's a message that they would be hated for. A message that they would be mocked for. And I think this speaks to me because, and I hope it speaks to you. Because that's exactly what living for Jesus equals. Living for Jesus means living at odds with the world. That's what happens when we pledge our allegiance, so to speak, to Jesus Christ. It automatically means we are rejecting the world's philosophies. It means we're rejecting the fact that our performance is what gets us in. We're rejecting the fact that we can uh, make everything happen on our own. It's actually a message of uh, utter uh, dependence on God. 
And suffering then becomes sort of an inevitable reality when you are rejecting the world's philosophies. It's not a matter of if, so to speak, it's a matter of when. And in fact, in 1 Timothy, uh, I'll just turn there really quickly, Paul continues to encourage his protege, Timothy, uh, with this message. It's actually 2 Timothy, excuse me. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes to his, his disciple, he says, Yea, and all that will live, in God, live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not maybe, it's not uh, perhaps, it's not um, if you do certain things you will do this. If you live for Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Because living for Jesus means living at odds with the world. And in fact, I like what one writer says. He says it this way. With his or her commitment to follow Christ faithfully, the Christian sets the course of his or her life directly opposite to the course of the world system. Confrontation and conflict then become inevitable. It's, it's what happens. It's natural. That's why Paul was confident when he was saying to the Thessalonians that you are destined to suffer. Because you are aligning yourself with a message and with a person more uh, specifically that is opposite of the world system. And therefore, you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be surprised by the suffering that you are facing. But you can know that these are part of what it means to follow Jesus. That's why he was writing to the Thessalonians, don't be surprised. That's why Jesus was warning his disciples, don't be surprised at what's going to happen. Just be faithful in my name. Don't worry about your success, how many people you convert. Just be faithful in being my vessel. Be faithful in being my voice. These new believers, I think, at Thessalonica were surprised by this suffering. They were shocked. They were sort of probably caught off guard. That this, this Paul guy came and stirred us up, and now look what happened. <laughs> now look at where we are. We have a mob come in and ruin uh, what we had going for us. But this is the message of Paul, but I think it's the message of Jesus. And like the apostles here in Matthew 10 and the Thessalonians in that chapter, in that letter, we are made to face suffering, not because of something in ourselves, but because of this promise. That it is not us who speak, it is not our message, it is Jesus. The promise that moors us to uh, the Messiah in the midst of all of our stresses and sufferings is the fact that He is ours. He says here in these verses, I am yours. Therefore you can be confident, you can be bold. He is with us. This is our solace in suffering. And this is what fastens us to the Savior. So that was the first promise. Look at verses 26 through 31, though, back in Matthew 10. Because this is the second promise. Very simple. The first one, Jesus says, I am yours. And here in these verses, in verse 26 down through 31, I think we have the other simple promise that moors us to himself is the fact that he says, you are mine. Look at what he says. 26, fear them not, therefore... For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, 
ye are of more value than many sparrows. I love these verses. These verses are, should be some cherished verses of every Christian. It's the fact that we see just in these statements and truths and assertions of our Savior, Jesus, that God the Father, He sees you. He knows you. There is no one on this earth who is unknown to God. He sees each and every one of our lives. If you think about that, think about all the things that perhaps you've faced in your life or perhaps you are facing coming forward. He sees every single one of those moments. He sees every single one of those heartaches. He sees every single thing that is happening to you and he knows them. And he's there with you through them. Jesus here in this chapter is encouraging his apostles to find strength and courage in the fact that they belonged to the one who is sovereign. They belonged to the sovereign creator of the universe. He was so aware of them, in fact, that he knew how many hairs they had lost. <laughs> now, I, I still have some hair on my head. I actually just found a gray hair the other day on my head. I don't know what that means. Perhaps it's kids. I don't know. It's something. I'm probably going to get more. My dad, he was blessed with like really dark black hair. Uh, so, and he still has it. He doesn't have a lot of gray. So may, I don't know. Maybe I'm blessed with that too. We'll see how stressful I get with kids. But I love this picture. The fact that Jesus is saying, God knows you so intimately. He knows how many hairs fell off your head yesterday. And in fact, he knows how many are going to fall off tomorrow. And I love that because it's kind of a silly thing. It's kind of perhaps Jesus is being a little bit hyperbolic with that illustration. But I also think it's not that silly. That God is that aware. He is that sovereign. He knows exactly um, what is going on down to the very follicle of hair that's falling off your head. And this same God who is sovereign over death. Look at verse 28 where he says... And fear them not which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying don't fear man who is only able to kill your body, but he can't change where you're going. Fear the one, fear me, the one who has keys to both life and death. And this same God who is sovereign over a death is the one who is holding you, is the one who is keeping you. This is what Jesus is saying, is that the God of the universe belongs to you, and you belong to the God of the universe. That's a thought that should stir our souls, that the same God who knows how many grains of sand that line our coasts and how many galaxies are spinning out in deep space that we have never even been able to see, he knows when a sparrow falls hungry and he knows when a follicle falls off your head. You have that amount of attention to him. If that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't motivate you, despite what goes on around you, I don't know what would. Because he knows you. There's nothing too small or too big for that God. There's nothing too inconsequential to bring before his feet. <laughs> and that's what I love about my God. You know, what, uh, me and uh, my wife Natalie, we moved to, uh, from West Palm Beach, Florida, down to Davie, Florida last year. And when we did that, our dog, who we had a German shepherd, and she wasn't 
quite happy with that move. <laughs> she had gone from a property that was about one and a quarter acres down to a property that was probably about a tenth of an acre. <laughs> so she had a lot less room to run around. And she didn't like it so much that she actually ran away. We lost her. This was right after we moved. We had just moved into our new house and we were kind of getting settled. And so not only dealing with the stresses of moving, now we have to deal with the stresses of a lost dog in a neighborhood we weren't familiar with. <laughs> Our dog was lost for nine days. And I remember uh, we were driving around, and I remember driving around when it first happened, and I just remember crying and crying out to God, God, help me find this dog. As a theologian, you know, I think about it. Why would God care about my lost German shepherd? It doesn't really matter to him. But I love the fact that God loves to hear those prayers. You know why? Because he loves to hear what's on his children's hearts and minds. He is not too big of a God that you can't go to him with that type of prayer for even a lost dog. Or whatever it is that's in your family that might be inconsequential. It's not too small for God. He loves those small prayers. He loves those things that you bring before him that make him feel like a father and it makes you feel like a little kid wrapped up in his arms. You can't bother God with those types of small burdens because, yes, he's the God of the galaxies, but he's also the God of the grains of sand and the God of the hairs on your head. This is the motivating message of our Messiah, that these apostles right here, they're going out into the world with this God on their side. They weren't alone. They had this God of the galaxies. He was with them. And I think same too that goes with the Thessalonians. And the same too for us. As we go out into our various workplaces, as we face a familial crisis or perhaps maybe financial burdens in our lives... <coughs> Stresses about children or stresses about work or stresses about jobs or stresses about this, that, and the other. Number one, we can't bother God with those. He loves to hear those. And number two, we have the God of the universe with us, residing in us. And I think that's so wonderful. Yes, indeed, we can say that. That's so wonderful about suffering. When we are made to go through suffering and trials, that's sort of, it's sort of like God's uh, teacher through trauma. It sort of sets the stage for he and he alone to get every single amount of attention, every single amount of glory. And that's what I think he's doing with these apostles. He's saying, don't worry about you. Don't worry about how your words come out because I'm going to give them to you. Don't worry about how successful you are in one town. Just go and move on to the next one and I will be there with you. Their witness to the world wasn't the fact that they were strong and they had it all put together and they were polished and they were fancy. It was the fact that they were weak and they knew it. And they said that I'm going to be with you so you can be weak and that's okay. That's your witness to the world. Your witness is weakness. I love these verses in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. You're probably familiar with them. I'm going to read them. But this is Paul's testimony. His witness to the world was his weakness. He says, 
And he's talking with God. Actually, if you, you can back up a little bit. We, if you know anything about Paul, it's, it's believed that he had an affliction of the eyes. He talks here in 2 Corinthians 12 about going to God three times to remove this affliction. We don't really know what it is. A lot of scholars believe it was he had something to do with his eyes. It's generally due to the fact that a lot of his letters, if you read like the last couple of verses, it's, you can, you'll read and you'll see that he had dictated this letter to like Theophilus or someone like that. So it's believed that he had a problem with his eyes, so he couldn't write things down. He had to have someone <coughs> write it down for him. Regardless, he goes to God three times. It says here, let's, uh, let's see. Um, Let's see, what verse, uh, verse 4. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. This is verse 6. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might be, depart from me. And listen to the Lord's response. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see how he was so fastened to his Messiah that he could glory in infirmities, glory in persecutions, glory in suffering because he knew that that is where he was most weak and his Savior most most strong. And this is opposite of the world's philosophy, right? The world's philosophy prizes strength and put-togetherness. And it says, weakness, you got to go away. We have to prove ourselves strong. we got to live strong, so to speak, and show that we can overcome. Only in the gospel are we given the preposterous message that we can glory in infirmities. As it says in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various diverse trials. That's a message that only the gospel gives us. It's a message that only Jesus gives us. To glory in weakness. To make weakness your witness. We don't have it all put together. <laughs> but we know someone who does. And we know someone who is going to make everything right again. And his name is Jesus. And he promises us in Revelation 21 that I have come to make all things new. That's our confidence. Our confidence in suffering is not that we can overcome it because of how strong we are, because of how capable we are, how competent we are, how amazing we can get through trials. It's the fact that Jesus is with, it in a, is with us in it. That the God of the galaxies sees our heartache and he knows it and he hears it and he comes to be with us in it. Perhaps some of my favorite verses turn to Isaiah 43. Verses 1 through 3. These are some of my favorite verses. Because if we, you, you think about going through suffering, Jesus doesn't draw us out of it. He doesn't give us an escape from it. He just says, take heart. I'm going to be with you in it. 
Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. They were going to go through the flood. They were going to go through the fire. They were going to go through all kinds of calamities. And God promises to them, I'm going to be with you. The same thing with Jesus and the apostles. You're going to be hated. You're going to be scourged. You're going to be mocked. Perhaps, yes, some of you are going to lose your life for what you are going to about to do. But I'm going to be with you. To Peter, he was crucified. To John, I believe that he was um, uh, one of the apostles. I think it was John. He was put in a vat of fiery burning oil. You can read on and on about the martyrs who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. And the fact of it all, the through line of it all, is the fact that uh, they were not unknown to God. That God was theirs and they were God's. It's this promise right here that Jesus is saying, I am yours and you are mine. You can take heart in that. That Jesus is with you in the midst of all of your weariness and all of your suffering. Jesus is with you. One old writer, his name is Samuel Rutherford. He has this phrase that I love. He says, binding up wounds is Christ's office. <laughs> I love that. Because that's what Jesus is. He's the, binding, he's the binder of our wounds. And it makes me think about when I was young, um, I was sort of clumsy. <laughs> My dad had a silly nickname for me. Uh, I don't remember what it is. But basically, I would hit my head on everything. And I would scrape my knees constantly because I was doing some rambunctious thing outside. And I remember constantly getting skinned knees. I don't know about you, but I always had knees that were scuffed up and scraped up. I always loved the fact that I could come inside to my mom and she would make things better, right? She would sit me down and put a little Band-Aid on my knee and perhaps even kiss it. And even then, that little kiss meant a lot to me because she was binding up my wounds. <laughs> the same thing with our God. You can go to him like you would a parent, like a loving father or mother, and he binds up your wounds, the sufferings that you feel, the hurts that you feel. He is what binds our, our wounds. He moors us to himself in his life and death. And this God who comes near us is the God who comes near the brokenhearted. Samuel Rutherford, that guy I just mentioned, he, 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 one of his most famous works is actually, he was a writer, a, a minister in, I think, the 1700s, I believe. Um, one of his famous works is actually just a large collection of letters. He was a, he was a studious uh, writer of letters to people around him and people in his life. And one letter he wrote to a family who had been imprisoned, I believe in Denmark, I think it is. He was writing this letter to them because they had been imprisoned for their belief in the gospel. And listen to how he encourages them. He says to this family, Hold fast to Christ in the dark, and surely ye shall see the salvation of God. <laughs> Hold fast. Hold fast to Christ in the midst of tribulation. Hold fast to Christ in the midst of suffering. And you know why we can hold fast? 
Because God is holding fast to us. It's not us who are gripping God with our strength and our might and we're white-knuckling God because we are so faithful. He is holding fast to us because he has suffered for us. He is holding on to us and he will never let us go. This God of the galaxies who sees us, who knows us, who has us in the palm of, our, of his hands, as it says in John 10, he will never let us go. And our lives are fastened to Jesus when we put our faith in that fact. That we are his and he is ours. And he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. No matter what we endure, no matter what we face, no matter what persecution might be ahead of us. Just like these apostles, just like these Thessalonican believers... We can face it with boldness, with courage, with confidence, because the God of the galaxies is on our side. Let us pray.